0: Turn together, please, to John chapter 7. We're continuing now in this brief series on the power and presence of God, the Holy Spirit. We're taking time to discern His person and His work. As I've said to you over the past few weeks, this has been born out of our study in the book of Acts as we discern the person and work of the Spirit in and among the church. felt as though it would be important for us to pause for just a few weeks and to talk about who He is and what He does. And so now we are in week three. We took the first week to trace and outline His activity in the Old Testament. He was there in the beginning as the agent of God, making all things, bringing form out of formlessness. He walked in and among his people as God created for himself a covenant people, both empowering the leaders who directed the hearts of God's covenant people, in particular the Jews, but also producing holiness as the law prescribed it to the people of God. And yet, by and large, he was rejected. For the most part, the influence of the Spirit was not yielded to by God's old covenant people and so promises were given to the Jews that one day God would bring the dead back to life that he would circumcise not just the external parts of the males of the covenant people but the hearts of all of the people those who would trust him and he would do this sovereignly by his spirit thus creating hearts of flesh where Hearts of stone had once coldly indwelt the hearts of these people, and in so doing, not only call them to faith and repentance, but enable faith and repentance, for only God can bring the dead to life. These are the promises of the Old Testament. For though we see, by and large, God's people wandering from Him, wandering, sinfulness, rebellion, failure... These would not be the final words. God would have the final word. He would bring the dead back to life. And just like the Spirit hovered over the face of the waters in Genesis chapter 1, bringing form out of formlessness, the Holy Spirit once again come by the promise of God and bring life into lifelessness, to bring hope into a dead world. Then last week we saw the initiation of this jesus the promised messiah would become a real human and be conceived in his mother's womb by the power and influence of this holy spirit then jesus after being born would be transformed and grown up in the spirit this perfect one this sinless one who did not and would not and could not sin would walk in the power of the Spirit, succeeding where all of the covenant people of God had failed, where Adam had failed to listen and respond to God in faithfulness, and where Israel had failed in following God in faithfulness, Jesus would succeed. He grew up under the influence and in the power of the Spirit, even to the point of being driven into the desert by the Spirit, as we saw in Mark's Gospel, rejecting the call of Satan to vindicate himself in sinful and prideful ways, but rather to yield to God and the influence of the Spirit, thus eventually securing for us eternal salvation, those of us who would trust in Him. And so we focused a good bit last week in Luke chapters 1 through 4 to see how Jesus Himself walked in the Spirit not only at the beginning and conception, but throughout his ministry, thereby showing us what a perfect man should be like. A perfect man should live in communion with God. And John the Baptist, at Jesus' baptism, when the Spirit came down in Jesus in the form of a dove, said that Jesus would not just baptize with water, as John had done, but would baptize with the holy spirit thus indicating that repentance would come but also transformation revivification newness restoration and now that brings us to part three of our teaching about the power and presence of god of the holy spirit we are going to look together primarily today in john's gospel as jesus will very soon in our primary section of john 14 through 16 be arrested crucified and, of course, be raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit, we will see Jesus' promise of the Spirit, He who would baptize His people with the Spirit. We will discern His teaching about that and what that means for us. So, now in John chapter 7, look with me, please, in verse 37. John chapter 7 is about Jesus' teaching and ministry at the feast of tabernacles or booths, a reminder of how Israel had at one time been in the wilderness, but God had rescued them from it. This was an interesting feast where each of the days of the feast, water would be poured out in the midst of the temple to show that God was in and among His people, feeding them and taking care of them, even in their period of great lack and dependence upon them. On the last day of the feast, a great... Procession of the people would go around these courts of the temple and water would be poured out indicating an expectation that one day God would do more than what he had done in the past. And it's at this point that Jesus says these words, John seven thirty-seven. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Now again, these people are saying, you've been faithful to us in the past. We're expecting you to do more in the future. Jesus now says this. If anyone thirsts, like their fathers and mothers had done in the wilderness, and like they themselves existentially in their spirits thirsted, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, the provision that comes from me is going to be greater than the provision that came from the rocks that you're forefathers drink from in the wilderness and their wanderings. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. I will not take time to develop this in great detail, because this would take weeks and weeks, but one of the questions that does come out of John chapter 7, verse 39 is, To what degree was the Spirit present among the people of God prior to the coming of Jesus? And as we've already learned about in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured out on His people, as a reference to Joel chapter 2, where the promise was given by the prophet that God would pour out His Spirit upon His sons and daughters. The question could be posed like this, was the Spirit present at all among His people prior to Jesus coming and pouring out the Spirit at Pentecost? Or was He present in a different way, or perhaps to a different degree? As we took time to explore the Old Testament briefly and the person and work of the Spirit, we saw that the Spirit was in and among His people. We learned from Isaiah's prophecy that the Spirit Himself was grieved As the people wandered away from God. So, at least to some degree, the Spirit was at work among the covenant people of God, even going as far back as the people of Israel. I would suggest, from what we will learn next week from Paul's writings in Romans chapter 8, that there is no way that a heart can come to life, there is no way that a person can be transformed from lack of holiness to presence of holiness, we might call this the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, unless God's Spirit is active. What I would suggest to you that John is saying here in John chapter 7 verse 39 is not that the Spirit had never been present in and among God's covenant people, but that He had not been given in fullness the way that He would be eventually in Acts chapter 2. I think we can see that to some degree as we will work through this passage a bit further. Turn with me now, if you don't mind, a little later in John's Gospel to John chapter 20. Jesus is crucified, John chapter 19. And by the grace and power and design of God, He is raised from the dead in John chapter 20. In verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They weren't feeling peaceful at all, both because they feared that the dream of the Messiah's promises were done, And also because they would have been very scared to see this one that they thought to be dead to be among them. Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So fear turns into joy. And Jesus says, verse 21 to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Jesus had to be crucified to be the substitute and atone for the sins of God's wayward people. But He could not just die, He had to be raised that He might conquer sin and death. And through His conquering of sin and death on the cross, And through the empty tomb, he now has the prerogative, the intended design of God to dispense the Spirit to his people. In this case, in John chapter 20 in particular, that they might continue the ministry that he began. That sins might be forgiven. And in certain cases, judgment might be meted out. We know that the Spirit will not come in total fullness because of our study in Luke's book of Acts so far, until Pentecost. But we do perhaps see an initial stage of the Spirit being promised to the apostles here, if at least not partially given out. So what we are finding here in these passages, and in another passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, where Paul says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, in reference to Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. In these passages like John 7 and John 20 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see Jesus as the conduit of the Spirit, the bringer of the Spirit, the giver of the Spirit. For as the prophet said, hearts of stone will lead one to death. Hearts of stone are separated from God. Hearts of stone will live and exist under the condemnation both presently and eternally of God something has to happen something radical something from heaven has to come down and transform the status quo Jesus came to pay the penalty for sinners and Jesus was raised into life that he might conquer sin and death thus taking away our penalty and our curse But the Spirit will be the one who will apply these promises. The Spirit is the one who will bring back to life, as the prophets foretold. The dry bones will come back to life and have beating hearts put within them, able to and desirous of following after God because of the ministry of the Spirit. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, He becomes the one who dispenses the Spirit, who brings life into this dead world. Now, again, he had been doing that to some degree. As we look into the Old Testament, though by and large God's people wandered far from him and were characterized by hearts of stone, we do see at times remnants of God's people who were faithful to him. Well, how is this possible? I would suggest to you that at least to some degree the Spirit was still at work in the Old Testament among God's Old Covenant people. For as we learn from Paul in Romans chapter 3, no one seeks for God. Everyone runs away from God. Everyone hates God. There are no neutral parties when it comes to the relationship between humanity and their creator. According to Paul, as we recently studied in Ephesians chapter 2, every son and daughter of Adam and Eve are born into this world as sons of disobedience, children of wrath dead in trespasses and sins. How did people in Old Covenant Israel come back to life? How did open hostility end? How did rebellion get put down? I would suggest to you that the Spirit was at work then. That He was bringing at least some back to life. That He was producing real holiness in some. But it was only in small measure. This suggests to us that the age of the Old Testament, a long, long time, longer than the time between us and the ascension of Jesus, the age of the Old Testament was long. And by and large, it was marked by sadness, by brokenness. And the notion would easily have crept in even to the people of God that people would always be this way, rebellion would always be the norm, but there were little moments throughout the history of God's working in the world, and in particularly in His covenant people, that you could see signs of life, and I would suggest to you that the Spirit was the one doing that, but sin had to be paid for. Life had to come back, and that's why the expectation of Jesus was constantly hinted at in the Old Testament. One day there will come transformation. One day life will break into death. One day light will break into darkness. And that's what Jesus came to do. Against the backdrop of human rebellion, against the backdrop of human sinfulness and and willful running away from God, Jesus comes, living Himself under the influence of the Spirit, living a holy and perfect life where all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve had failed. And through his righteous substitution and his powerful resurrection, he then becomes the dispenser of the Spirit so that those who trust in him can come back to life. So that the end will be better than the beginning, the latter will be greater than the former. The longing will lead to fulfillment. And that's what Jesus is promising. Here in these passages. What did Jesus give us in the giving of the Spirit? I would say first of all from the teaching of John that he will be given to the church to convict and convert. I mentioned to you last week a book that's been incredibly helpful for me written by Sinclair Ferguson entitled The Holy Spirit. I'm deeply indebted to him for This outline today, but very simply in John chapter 14 through 16, the passage in the Gospels that teaches us the most about the relationship between Jesus, the Spirit, and the church, that we learn three really important things. The first is that the Spirit will be given to convict and convert. In John chapter 16, verse 7, if you'd like to turn there with me. Jesus teaches us this very thing. Nevertheless, Jesus tells the disciples the night that he will be arrested after he's had the last supper with them. Nevertheless, John 16:7 I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now, they did not fully understand this. John likely wrote this gospel in the 80s or early 90s A.D. He had 50 to 60 years to reflect upon all that Jesus had said. Jesus' initial words to these disciples, which would be all scrambled up because very soon Jesus would be arrested in John chapter 18, then crucified in chapter 19, as we've seen already. They did not fully understand, but Jesus had these final words to give to them so that eventually, after His resurrection and ascension and the influence of His Spirit, even after His ascension, that they could interpret these things and understand them rightly. Jesus is foretelling that He will go away through death and resurrection and then ascension. But this will not be the end of the story. His ministry would continue, and He says that, spirit will be given to convict the world to lead them to conversion or repentance. Turn with me if you don't mind now to Acts chapter 2. As we saw in John chapter 20 after Jesus resurrection at least to some degree he says to them receive the spirit and so the ministry of the spirit in and among them will now be amplified. Now remember, as we saw last week, Jesus himself was full of the power of the Spirit. So whenever the disciples hung around Jesus, they were hanging around the Spirit. Jesus is saying to them in an amplified way, when I go away, the Spirit will be given to you in full measure. When does that come to full completion or fulfillment? We already seen in John 20 that to a degree when Jesus says to receive the Spirit, they did perhaps in part, but now in Acts chapter 2, after they've been hanging out in Jerusalem in the upper room, the Spirit comes in fullness. And then Peter, as you know, as we studied not long ago in our verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Acts, this comes to pass. So Peter preaches this first sermon. Now, this is interesting because as we know from the Gospels, and in particular, John's Gospel, when Peter trusted himself, what happened? Peter, who told Jesus that he would never forsake Him, never deny Him, you know, he did three times. He cowers in fear. At the end of John's Gospel, Jesus confirms him. He brings his faith back to life, so to speak. But this one who was formerly a coward just a few weeks before now stands up in front of the entire city and preaches the first Christian sermon. What's the response to this? Well, he calls them to repentance in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's a bold statement from a coward. Now this one who was empowered by the Spirit preached this sermon and the people respond in verse 37 with cut hearts. They are so convicted by their sinfulness and by their complicity in the murder of Jesus that they are cut to the heart. And they say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? These who were calling out for the crucifixion of Jesus now call out for mercy. about three thousand souls this is the initial fulfillment of john chapter 16 verses 7 through 11 jesus will ascend back to heaven at the beginning of acts chapter 1 and tell the apostles to wait there in jerusalem for the promise the fulfillment of the fullness of the spirit coming to them and as he comes he will empower them to preach the good news of jesus to lead people to repentance from their sin and to faith in Him as their Messiah. Jesus said this would happen, and He gives the gifts of the Spirit to convict and convert. And we are sitting here today, not under the direct preaching of the apostles, for they've been dead and gone a long time, but under their influence. So the Spirit not only convicts and converts, but He inspires. Look with me in John chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus says in verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now please, in chapter 15, verse 26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And in chapter 16, verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit will not only convict and convert, He will inspire. He will illuminate the apostles in their reading of the Old Testament, combined with the teaching of Jesus, so they will be able not only to preach, but to write. And therefore, the apostles do speak to us today through the Scriptures. John will say at the end of his Gospel, That if all that Jesus said and did were written down, that the world could not contain the volumes that would be necessary to house such a library. But they were not required to remember it themselves. We have a difficult time with this, right? Most of us have short memories Um, My wife is amazing at remembering every detail of things up till about the age of 17. Sometimes she struggles with everything after that. I'm kind of the opposite. Everything like between the ages of like 1 and 18 are sort of a blur to me, but I can remember in great detail something I read five years ago. Most of you kind of err on one side or the other. Uh, There's memory pills I hear that are out there to help us with this. I'm not sure if they work or not, but we have short memories apostles would. There's no way that that their minds could, could rehearse all the things that Jesus said to hold on to all these things. But they would be given supernatural power to do just that. And herein lies an opportunity for gratitude. For we sit here today with these Bibles in our laps, whether covered in leather or covered in plastic screens as you stare at them, and these words have been written down and recorded and left for us because of the influence of the Spirit. Now, let's just pause for a moment and consider what all this means. The Spirit who gave life to the world, who brought form out of formlessness back in Genesis chapter 1, the one who, who brought life out of chaos. Do you not see that that's what he's doing here? in the first advent of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus. Jesus breaks into time and space to live among the rebels. He was Emmanuel, God with us. But He instructs the apostles that it will be better after His death and resurrection that He goes away so that He can dispense His Spirit in them and that they will be able to in His power minister through Him that more and more worshipers might be made so that more and more rebels could be turned into sons and daughters. So that sons and daughters of disobedience and children of wrath can be raised from the dead to new life. So the Spirit is God's agent in the original earth to bring life out of nothingness. And now, through the ministry of Jesus, the Spirit has been given in fullness to bring life into a world characterized by awful, horrific death. And herein, I want you to see my prayer that you see the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, as a wonderful lover of God's people. What do we deserve because of our sin? We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve condemnation. And we're born into this world, no matter how much we try to suppress it and push it back with the notion that things aren't right here. With some, some notion in the back of our brains that, It wasn't always this way, and perhaps it could be different. That there is a God who made us, and we are accountable to Him, but we are scared to death of Him. What did God do? What did God do to the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve who were hiding in the bushes trying to cover ourselves with our own self-righteousness? What did He do? He sent His Son to cover us in His righteousness. He sent His Son to bring us into the light. He sent His Son to adopt us as sons and daughters, as we will learn next week. The Spirit who is the Spirit of adoption, whereby we can cry out, Abba, Father. We who were petrified by God and horrified by our sins, covering them up. He sent His Son to rescue us. And He sent His Son to bring the Spirit, to bring light into the darkness, life into death, hope into hopelessness. And Jesus gives His Spirit to convict and convert lost, rebellious hearts. And He sent His Spirit to inspire men like Peter and James and John and others to remember all that Jesus had said and done and to write it down so that the Bibles that we have in front of us today, though we don't worship them, The Bible is not to be worshipped. The Bible leads us to worship. The Bible leads us to gratitude. The Bible leads us to hope. And this is why you need it so much. It's not my place to tell you how much you should read it every single day. It's not my place to tell you the volume that you should take in on a daily or even yearly basis. That's between you and God to a degree to prescribe for you rules for reading. But I have to say to you that if you are not living under the influence of the Spirit through the Word, because that's how He works, He doesn't speak to you individually in an audible voice. He speaks to you through the Word. And if you wonder sometimes why you're so overcome with anxiety, so overcome with fear of the future, Running away from God and, and hiding in your sinfulness. Habits that can't seem to be broken. Fearful of God and fearful of man. There, there are probably a number of reasons, a number of things at play, that, that lead to these debilitating fears and problems. But one of the primary reasons, and this, this may seem reductionistic, like I'm reducing something to a simple formula. And I'm not, because I've already qualified what I'm getting ready to say by saying that there are more complications that lead to our problems in living. I believe that. But we have to admit that one of the primary things, if not the primary thing that leads to many of our problems in living, is that we neglect the voice of God, the influence of the Spirit through the Word. What's interesting about sadness and anxiety and depression and, and guilt over sin is that when we know hearing from the voice of God is the remedy, we run from it all the more. And that's the lie of Satan in our ears. I'm not saying to you that if you go read a few verses every morning, you'll never be anxious, that you'll never feel any sort of compulsion towards sin, or you'll never struggle with guilt. I'm not saying that. But I am saying as long as you listen to the forked tongue of the evil one who drives us away from the word of God and not to the Son of God who fought the Satan, the opposer of God, the devil, with the word that we will continue to persist in these same problems that we have every single day and we will be miserable. Satan knows how to play the game. He knows how to keep us from the voice of God. He's been doing it since the Garden. Now it suggests to you that the spirit who inspired these words for our joy is calling us today to listen to them, to live under their influence. So the Bible is not merely a book of incantations. that suddenly and mag- magically and miraculously fixes all of our problems in an instant. This is not Harry Potter stuff. but a life lived under the influence of the word in humility and expectation will be by and large a life marked by forward thinking and joy. So I call you, if you have neglected the word, come back to it. It has been given to you by Jesus through the Spirit and the writing of these apostles who walked with Jesus to encourage our faith, to lead us to life. Jesus gave the Spirit to convict and convert, to inspire. And thirdly, Jesus gave the Spirit to provide communion. And herein lies great hope for us. Look with me, please, in John chapter 14, verse 18. Jesus says to these disciples who don't even know to be scared yet. They're going to be scared in a few short hours when Jesus is arrested. They don't even know to be scared yet. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. If you were to read on, you would perhaps believe that Jesus is saying that after the resurrection, I'll come back to you. He doesn't not mean that, because He will do that, but He'll only be with them for a few short days before He ascends back to the Father. He's promising them something more lasting than this. He's promising that He will come to them in the person and presence of the Spirit. Look with me, please, in John chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send Him to you. That doesn't even seem to make any sense. They were with the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He was physical. He was with Him. They could hang out with Him and eat with Him and be taught by Him. But He is saying, for their full joy and for their comfort, for communion with Him in fullness, and for the ministry that they have to carry out, it is better that He goes away, that they might be indwelt by and give out the power and influence of the Spirit to those around them. And that's what the church is. Look with me, please, in Ephesians chapter 2. We studied this recently in our teaching through Ephesians. Perhaps it'll take on some new flavor and meaning for you today. I will not take time to read this entire section to give you a bit of context. Paul is encouraging Jews and Gentiles alike to dwell together in unity, to appreciate each other, and to know that Jesus came to make one race, putting off the boundaries of ethnicity to make one people for the glory of God. Look in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, Jesus is, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Ethnic realities will remain. We appreciate all ethnicities and differences, but the things that broke us apart and tore us apart, those will be abolished. He's going to abolish, verse 15, the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord and him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The communion that Jesus promised to the apostles in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16 has come to pass in the church And as we dwell together in unity with one another and with God, Jesus has made peace with God by being a propitiation, a wrath bearer in our place. We need not bear the wrath of God Jesus did for us. And as we trust Him, we are brought back into fellowship with Him and with each other. So Jesus, through the Spirit, provides communion with us, so that we might know God as His children and we might be related to one another. We see the brokenness and tragedy of the world all around us. I think it would be chronologically naive of us to say that we live in the worst age it's ever been. Just read human history, be a student of anthropology and culture, and and you would say that this is not the worst age that we've ever lived in. It's the only age we've ever lived in, so it's what we existentially and experientially know. But the world has been marked throughout time, throughout season, throughout cultural shift and change, throughout empires rising and falling by brokenness and sadness. Ours is no different. As our country growing worse, I'm not sure how to interpret that entirely. We see two heroic protectors of the populace being slain in cold blood in Westerville a week ago, whenever we see 17 students and teachers being gunned down in a horrific manner in Florida just a few days ago, and, and I'm sure more is coming, we feel it. We, we feel the separation from God. We, we feel the darkness settling in around us. But the church is to shine in such moments. We are to be the people of God so that we might display His glory in this dark world. The kingdom of God has not come in fullness, but it is here, wherever God's people are. So dads, whenever you take time to read the Bible and then instruct your children in the way that they should go for the glory of God, you're pushing back against the darkness moms whenever you seem to do the the mundane routine things every day but demonstrate to your children in word and deed the hope that you have in jesus you are doing something significant when we speak the words of truth the words of hope the gospel to our neighbors who have not heard it or have not yet believed we are witnessing and partaking in the ministry of Jesus through the Holy Spirit to bring light into darkness, life into death. So the Spirit has come to bring us communion with God. And the church now exists to proclaim to the world that communion with God is possible because of Jesus. And the Spirit is the agent who is making that happen. So, so unity among ourselves is a really big deal. As we commune with God and with one another, we are saying something profound. And we should be inviting other people into this. For the apostles were given the power of the Spirit for conviction and conversion and inspiration and communion. Not to have a little holy club that no one else would enter into, but through their ministry to draw others in, to invite others in. And that's what we saw in Pentecost as we read about earlier in Acts chapter 2. From Peter's first sermon, he who was a coward and now inspired by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit to proclaim the hope in Jesus, 3,000 people were saved. And while we may not see the amount of conversions coming in in droves as the early church saw initially in the initial outpouring of the Spirit, we should see more that we believe in God as the Sovereign agent of salvation, choosing and regenerating and transforming. We are as mouthpieces. People will not believe unless they hear, and they will not hear unless we are sent. And so the apostles were sent out by Jesus and the power of the Spirit to proclaim the good news of Jesus, to push back against the darkness, to bring life into death. That's what the Spirit has always done, whether it was the beginning of time or now. Life is the plan of God. It glorifies God and He brings it to pass through His Spirit and He does it through the church. Ferguson says in his book on the Spirit, and we'll close, it is in this sense that John sees the difference that Pentecost signals in the ministry of the Spirit. So something significant does happen at Pentecost, at least by degree. Now, as the bond of union to God, the Spirit indwells all who believe as the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a development of epical proportions. The Spirit who was present and active at Christ's conception as the head of the new creation, we saw that last week, by whom He was anointed at baptism, again last week, who directed Him throughout His temptations, last week, empowered Him in His miracles, energized Him in His sacrifice, and vindicated Him in His resurrection, Now indwells disciples in this specific identity. This is the meaning of our Lord's words. Otherwise impossible to comprehend, it is for your good that I am going away. The Spirit who produced all these things in Jesus Christ, the God-man, has been given to us in fullness to produce transformation, proclamation, and glorious victory in and through us. This is why Jesus says to the disciples, it's better that I go away. God is doing miraculous things in us. It is a miracle that we are here today. The preaching of the gospel will be foolishness to us otherwise. It's a miracle that we are here. The Spirit still seeks to do miracles in and through us as he transforms us from one degree of glory to another, which we'll talk about next week, and then to proclaim the good news, the hope of Jesus that others might be brought back to life out of. So Jesus gives the Spirit to convict, to convert, to inspire, and to provide communion with God. As we close, I want to say to you that these things take consideration. These things take meditation. I I would encourage you to take the notes, and I can give them to you if you didn't jot them down, and to, to meditate back through these things. Everything that God does to bring life out of death, light into darkness, is a miracle. So be grateful, be thankful, and then walk in the power and the influence of the Spirit that those miracles might continue and flow out to many, many more. Jesus is at work to bring life out of death, and He does that in and through us. So may we be grateful, and may we yield to Him in full faith that He might do that for many, many more. We are not alone. The Spirit has been given to us to enable this. So may God miraculously work in and through us for His glory and the joy of countless numbers of people here and around the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we can't bring ourselves back to life. You have done that through your death and resurrection and the ministry of your Spirit, and for this we are grateful. We ask you to do more. We ask that you continue to make us into who we need to be and who we want to be. We ask you to bring life out of death, light into the darkness, order out of chaos, hope into the hopelessness. Do that for us. And then do that through us like you did with the apostles. You took a bunch of normal people like us and you transformed them by the miraculous power of heaven. So do this, we pray. Do this for your glory. Do this for our joy and the joy of many. The world all around us is broken and it's going to hell. And we take no delight in this. It's sad, it is tragic, and it should break our hearts. But we are recipients of miraculous promise. We pray that as we walk The power of your spirit, this miraculous promise that you will do for others what you have done in us. So convict and convert. And through your inspiration, bring communion with yourself and with us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand.